I found this little article this past week. It said the ABCs of being a father. It goes through the whole alphabet. So rather than try to copy it down, if you want a copy, I'll just send it to you in the email. But I'll start with A. Always trust them to God's care. Bring them to church. Challenge them to high goals. Delight in their achievements. Exalt the Lord in their presence. Frown on evil. Give them love. Hear their problems. Ignore not their childish fears. Joyfully accept their apologies. Keep their confidence. Live a good example before them. Make them your friends. Never ignore their endless questions. Open your home to their visits. Pray for them by name. Quicken your interest in their spirituality. Remember their needs. Show them the way of salvation. Teach them to work. That's a good one. Teach them to work. (laughs) Understand they are still young. Verify your statements. Wean them from bad company. Expect them to obey. Yearn for God's best for them. And Z is zealously guide them in biblical truth. You know, if you've grown up under the influence of a spiritual father, I'm sure that you're eternally grateful for that man's influence in your life. And today we're looking at Paul's influence on these, what he would call his children in Corinth, in this church. And remember last week we looked at uh, the marks of a spiritual father, just gave him a list. It said, we said that he admonishes, he loves, he sets an example, he teaches, and he disciplines. That's what a spiritual father does. And we saw where Paul had a concern in verse 14 for the Corinthians. We saw his compassion in verse 15, his counsel in verse 16, and his uh, companion for them, Timothy, in verse 17. Well, I want to read the text for us just so we have it all in in this context. So follow along in your Bibles as we read from verse 14, but we'll actually start teaching from verse 18. So verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. And then our text for today is verses 18 to 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And if I find, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a a spirit of gentleness? One thing that's difficult for me anyway is to be around arrogant people. People who are just very, very arrogant. And um, it even makes it worse when that arrogance crosses over into their spirituality. (laughs) They're spiritually arrogant. They look down on everyone else. 
Um, and the Apostle Paul here, as we've seen in these recent verses in chapter 4, he loves this church. He loves it. He gave birth to this church. He was the, the, the pastor that founded this church. And now they're having all these issues amongst them. And not just little things, big problems. We're going to find out in chapter 5, some really bad things are happening in this church. But everything that he's told them, as much as he's admonished them, as much as he, in a way, scolded them, threatened them even, it's all come from a heart of love. It's come from a loving heart. And he's been tough on them all the way from chapter 1, verse 12, if you look all the way back there, right up to where we are here in verse 18. He didn't pull back his words. You know, sometimes it's hard to say the right things to people, the truthful things to people, because it may hurt them. But you know what? When you love somebody, you're willing to take that chance. You're willing to reach out and say those difficult things, uh, knowing, praying that they know it comes from a loving heart. And see, this has to... This, this has happened here in the Corinthian church specifically. In spiritual arrogance especially happens when people detach themselves. They detach themselves from Christ. And they attach themselves to something else. And the result is really spiritual arrogance. If the Corinthian church just held on to Jesus, he wouldn't have had to say all these hold things, these hard things to to uh, these Christians in Corinth. He has said all those tough things to help them understand basically that they need to come back and they need to live by faith, not by the flesh. And they need to come back and they need to remember that they're attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to verse 18 here and Paul really turns to the guilty ones. And he really addresses them continuously throughout the rest of the book. They know who they are. Um, when we go to the, visit the grandkids once in a while, when you're going on base, they have a, a placard there when you're going through the security gate that lists the threat level. You know, as far as what you have to do, as far as your ID and all that. And, and you know, in the military, they have different threat levels. DEFCON is what it's called. Uh, defense readiness condition is what it's the short for, DEFCON. Um, and five is the lowest. It's, it's the easiest level. Um, four means that something's going on, but it's not that serious. And you move up the level. Three, it gets pretty serious. Two, it's, it's really pretty important. And when they reach DEFCON 1... That's when our armed forces are basically under the threat of foreign attack. So you have this level, this gauge laid out before you. You don't see that very often in America. DEFCON 1. You just don't. Where an attack is imminent. But here, this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. He's gone from DEFCON 5 right down to DEFCON 1. This is very serious. He wants them to understand, look, I love you. I'm your father in the faith. I'm your spiritual father. And now he turns around and he's going to move in with force. 
He's not going to pull any punches. He's going to address the people who are spiritually arrogant in this church. They've detached themselves from Christ and they've attached themselves to anything of the flesh. Remember, some of these people were following individuals. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They had that all wrong. Um, as we go through Corinthians, we see people attached to people, to individuals. We see people attached to their opinions. We see people attached to uh, the lust of their flesh. We even see people attached to their spiritual gifts in a wrong way. We see people attached to just about everything that you can attach yourself to. The whole problem is when you attach yourself to something else as a believer, you're detaching yourself from Christ. Let me ask you the question, what do you attach to? That's going to tell you everything about your spiritual condition. He says right there in verse 18, now some have become arrogant. Some have become arrogant. Verse 18 points out the first issue Paul wants to deal with is spiritual insolence. He doesn't come out and tell us that they're who these people are who are spiritually arrogant because he knows they know who they are. He doesn't name names. It could have been the leadership of the church. It could have been some of the helpers in the church. We don't know. He doesn't specifically say. But whoever they are, the message that Paul sends them is very, very, very clear. First of all, he deals with their spiritual insolence. He wants them to know when you're spiritually arrogant, there is going to be an insolent attitude about you. What's that mean? It means an unwillingness to obey authority. You just think your authority is yourself. And look at what he says here in verse 18. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Remember, Paul is not there in Corinth. He's away. He's planning other churches, other words, other, other places. He's writing them a letter because he can't get there right now. Now, when he says some here, it's very important. If you go all the way back to verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. So back there he says, each of you. But here he says, some of you. When when you go back to verse 12 of chapter 1, it's a certain word used there. But here in in verse 18, he uses really the the plural form of the little word tis in the original language, which means some of you which means he's talking about more than one, but not all. So this was a significant problem. Somewhere along the way, perhaps, 
we can discover why this is significant, but he says some of you are arrogant. Some of you have become arrogant. It's in the aorist passive indicative. In, in other words, what he's saying is something has caused some of these people to become arrogant in their spirituality. The subject is being acted upon when you have the passive voice there. And so the word arrogant is a very interesting word. When someone is that way, it's clearly evident to everybody. That's what it, it means. When it comes to the, from the word that means to blow up, it means to inflate. Um, have you ever had one of those uh, air mattresses you blow up and you inflate? You know, when you finish blowing that thing up, it's, it's full of air. You can lay on it, it's comfortable. But sometimes you can jump on those things hard enough to where what? They'll pop. And what happens? All the the air comes out and it's flat again. What keeps it from going flat? It's that air on the inside of it. See, the, the idea here in the New Testament is that these people are filled with pride and conceit. It has the thought of somebody thinking more highly of themselves than they should. Putting themselves really into a position to where they will not listen to anyone else. The picture is really they become a big, fat, arrogant bag of wind. That's what it's illustrating. You know, we've probably all said this on occasion, maybe when we were younger, or something, oh, that guy's just full of hot air. It's that kind of individual that we're talking about here. Well, that word is used six times here in 1 Corinthians, and it gives a vivid description of what we're talking about. Somebody who is spiritually arrogant is not just a big bag of wind because it has implications that reach far more than that. The first time it's used is in verse 6 of chapter 4 here in 1 Corinthians. It says, I've applied all these things to myself in Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what was written, that none of you may be what? Puffed up. You may not become spiritually arrogant there. He wants them to understand that this is not a, something that we should strive for. And he says, basically, they're doing it here for various reasons. Uh, the results of spiritual arrogance, first of all, he says there that you have exceeded what is written. <laughs> In other words, you think that you know so much about your spirituality that you can go out fight outside the confines of God's word and, and make up your own theology. So he says arrogance is tends to exceed what God has already given us. 
And what he's warning them is don't go beyond there in verse 6. Don't go beyond what God has already given you. He has given us everything we need in his written word. We don't need to go outside of that. So the first thing we need to understand, a person who is spiritually arrogant is that he's certainly willing to exceed that which is written, to go beyond what God has written. And that's what gets you in trouble because you, you go down a road that God has not prescribed And they think, you know what, I I don't have to listen to God's word. I'm going to make up my own path. I'm going to listen to my own authority. And that's the second thing here. He says, you have become your own authority. That's really what he, he points out here in verse 18. That's what he's telling them. Some are arrogant. In other words, because I'm an authority figure, because I'm a pastor who founded that church, and I'm not there, you think you can do whatever you want. And he's saying that's a wrong attitude. That's what happens when people are arrogant. They not only exceed the boundary of God's word, but they also become authority onto themselves. They become their own authority. They think their way is right. Nobody's going to change them. And that's a wrong attitude to have. When you ever run into somebody and you can't tell them anything, they just won't listen. It's very frustrating. Now, we've probably all been there at times in our lives, to be honest, but that's not a place we want to dwell in. We don't want to be known for being a kind of person that doesn't listen to criticism or to advice. We always want to be open. We want to grow in our relationship with the Lord, with our relationship with the body, our relationship with the word. We never arrive. And as a result of exceeding what is written and becoming your own authority, what happens to these people who are arrogant is they become insensitive to sin. Look at what he says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 2. He says, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. They were having issues with sexual immorality in the church and nobody was doing anything about it. They were unwilling to act. They were unwilling to practice any kind of church discipline over somebody who, in this case, was committing incest with somebody in their own family. Can you imagine within the confines of the church this going on? We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 5. But because they've become so arrogant and they've exceeded what is written and they've become their own authority, you become insensitive to sin to the point where you don't even deal with it in your own life or in the life of others. The next thing that happens is you become prideful in your knowledge. Flip over to chapter 8, verse 1. It shows us here clearly something that happens to someone who is spiritually arrogant, someone who exceeds the written word, someone who makes himself his own authority. They're big bags of wind, but they, are, they think they're doing it the right way. And what's it say there in verse 1? It says, now concerning 
food offers to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And look at what he says. This knowledge puffs up. See, there's opportunity for your knowledge, even of the word, to make you prideful, to make you spiritually arrogant. And the Bible is very clear. God resists the pride, the prideful person, the proud. And you even look over in chapter 13, verse 4. Kind of the end result here of someone who is spiritually arrogant, who is exceeding the confines of God's word, who's become their own authority, who is insensitive to sin and prideful in their knowledge. Verse 4 of chapter 13, it says, That love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. And look at what it says. It is not what? It is not arrogant. See, whenever you find a spiritually arrogant person, they don't know it, but they're really unable to display any kind of the love of God that we're told of in the Scriptures. Because this kind of love, the fruit of the Spirit, cannot be displayed by a person who is living attached to anything other than Christ. So what what it means to be spiritually arrogant is pretty clear. It's a person who's not living in a way that honors Christ, in a way that's attached to Christ. It's a person that somehow has detached himself from Christ. Christ in his example and moved above and beyond the word of God and become his own authority. And now what happens? His flesh reigns his life. He's immature. He's fleshly. Paul has already identified the people in Corinth as such. Basically, he calls them a bunch of babies. Now go back to chapter 4, verse 18. He says here, some, not all, but some of you have become arrogant as though I were not coming. That passive voice, you have become arrogant. What has made them arrogant? Other than the fact that they're detached from Christ. What what has made them arrogant? Well, he says here, basically, there's another thought here. Paul is not coming. The man that founded their church, the man that taught them for 18 months, he's not coming. And that's what he says. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Not coming is a, is a pre- present participle. In other words, they, they really believe that he's not even on his way. There's no way he's going to come. He's not even beginning to come to see us. You say, well, what's that have to do with anything? The Apostle Paul is not only their spiritual father in Christ, but he's also an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to verse 1, chapter 1. He is the authority. But when there's no authority around, (laughs) what's the phrase? The cat's away. The mice will play. See, those who are living in a way that exceeds the word of God, they're saying, they're boasting really, you know, Paul's not going to come back. We're just going to do what we want to do. Who cares? 
And Paul is telling them that's, that's the height of insolence. You won't submit to God. Why would I think that you would submit to me? See, that's a, a, a very rebellious attitude. It's a rebellious spirit of a person who is spiritually arrogant. And the cat is away, the mice will play. I've heard people who have stepped away from church talk to people. I don't go to church anymore. You know, they're always saying Jesus is coming back. He hasn't come back yet. <laughs> I'm going to do what I want to do and sneak in at the last moment. That's their attitude. See, Paul is exposing that attitude. He's saying many of you, many of you are doing what you are doing because of the rumor that I'm not even coming back. I mean, that's why he said to the Philippian church over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 18, he said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation. What's that tell us? That means the person you are being obedient to is not the man who had the authority, but it's God who gives the authority. See, once you are obedient to God, then it's easy to become submissive to others. It's not an issue. But a person who's spiritually arrogant, a person who doesn't need the word of God, a person who detaches himself from what God has to say and becomes an authority onto themselves, and the only time they really get nervous is if somebody who is a spiritual authority gets around them. I've seen it time and time again. Pick up some folks with Uber, driving Uber part-time once in a while and in the mornings and be on the way to the airport 4.30 in the morning or something like that. Strike up a conversation. I mean, just the language they use is just horrible. I mean, it would make a sailor blush sometimes. I just listen because I know the question's coming. And sooner or later they get around to, you know, well, do you do this full time? No, no, I don't do this full time. I have a, a full time job in Redwood City. And they say, oh, well, what do you do? And then I tell them, oh, I pastor a church. And there's just silence. <laughs> Nothing. They don't know what to say. They're embarrassed. And they should be. Not because I'm a pastor. But somehow, that spiritual presence in that car when they're, you know, every other word is this, 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 all of a sudden, all that stops. And what happens? All of a sudden, wow, wow. I, yeah, I used to go to church. You know, and sometimes, they'll be, hey, I'm really sorry for you know, my life. And they'll apologize. That's, that's between you and God, pal. You know, I've heard worse. 
You're not offending me. You're offending the God who created you. And, you know, some people just don't know what to do. Um, and I wonder how many times these individuals who I run across on a plane or in the backseat of my car or whatever who speak that way possibly maybe are even involved in their own church. <laughs> They're living a double life. See, the height of spiritual arrogance is if the only time we get nervous is if somebody with spiritual authority comes around us. That really tells you where your heart is. So in 1 1, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm an apostle called by Christ by the will of God. I am the authority. That's what he's saying. And here he's telling them, you know what? You think I'm not coming, and you're, 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 you think you can do whatever you want. It reminds me of back in Judges, in the Old Testament, Judges 17, 6, and 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You remember the verse. There was nobody in authority over these people. What happened? So it says, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. It grieves my heart when I run into parents, especially fathers. Well, I'm just going to let my kids do their own thing and, you know, explore the world as they just want to do whatever they want to do. They think somehow that's helpful. That's not helpful. They need guidance. If they don't have leadership in their lives, especially spiritual leadership, what happens? They do whatever they want to do. And that's not a good thing. And here Paul exposes their attitude. He's exposing the attitude that says, I'm not under anybody's authority, and you're not here to tell me anything. So I'm going to do whatever I want. I read this story of a trucker, Christian trucker. He said he was riding on his road from Memphis, Tennessee, and he had a CB radio on. And this guy came on and said, hey, good buddy, put the pedal to the metal, let the hammer down. There's not a smoky all the way down the coast. And the trucker said, I was driving on and I had my cruise control on. He was a believer. Thank God, he says, for cruise control. Keeps me honest. I set it at the speed limit and I was just riding along. And he said there was this guy that came on the, the CB saying, put the pedal to the metal. There's not a smoky around here. About that time, somebody comes back on and says, hey man, slow down. The guy who's telling you to put the pedal to the metal is the Smokey. And he's sitting down here about 25 miles and he's got about 15 cars pulled over. He goes on and he says, everybody started saying all kinds of things on there that I'd rather not tell you. <laughs> One guy comes on, didn't identify himself. He just pops on. He says, well, if you would... If you would obey the law, you wouldn't have anything to worry about. Somebody else came on, just said, amen. <laughs> and after that, the radio went dead. <laughs> Nobody said anything. See, what happens when spirituality invades the wickedness, the wickedness flees. And the attitude of arrogance is that you're under no authority. And therefore, the only time you get nervous is when someone who represents that authority gets around you. 
We're not free to do whatever we want to do. The only time that is is when you've detached yourself from Christ and his authority and you're living that conceited, arrogant life of the church of Corinth, how they were living. Spiritual insolence. Well, the second thing here in verse 18, he points out, he talks about, or verse uh, uh, 19 there, but he talks about the reason for arrogance there in your outline, the lack of authority but then he moves on to spiritual impotence in verse, 15, or verse 19. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will, not, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. So you see the spiritual nature of, of Paul. He says, hey, you know what? I... I have pretty good understanding. I want you to understand that I I will return. But then he puts that in there, if the Lord wills. I like that. So many times we think we're just out there making our own plans, our own own pursuit of whatever we want to do. And so the second thing he does here in verse 19 is he warns them. You know, you don't know if I'm not coming or not. I may be coming. And he says, I'm hearing a lot of talk. But it's not your talk, folks. It's the walk that's behind your talk that counts. One father said, my reputation is what people think about me. My character is what my wife and children know about me. I mean, it's really God who knows about me. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. And so he says here, this talk, this word for talk, there in the verse is logos. It means intelligent words. So you can even sound very intelligent according to the world standards. You can have somebody who gives intelligent words who might even sound spiritual. But that doesn't make it so. You have to look at the life that backs it up. Do they live what they preach? Is there any power of God behind it? Is there a touch of God on their lives? See, these people, whoever they were, thought Paul wasn't coming back. And he said, hey, I, I am coming back. And he qualifies it. I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills. Soon means immediately, quickly, in a blink of an eye. In other words, you don't know when I'm coming back. I could show up tomorrow. It's the same word he uses in Galatians 1 to 6, or chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Just like that. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, when he says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Same word, quickly. He means right away. Right away, immediately, I am coming to you. But then he adds, Hey, if the Lord wills, my heart is to be there, but it's not up to me. I'm not in control of my own destiny. 
See, the Apostle Paul is not like the Corinthians. He's not a baby with a pacifier sitting in a nursery somewhere. He's come out of the nursery. He's thrown away the pacifier, and he's learned how to qualify things that he says. He has learned what Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So it would be foolish for Paul to say, I'm coming soon. He's not sure if God might not intervene in that. So he puts that disclaimer on it. As far as I have anything to do with it, I want to be there with you. I'm coming quickly. But I know something about this, and I've been down this road before, and God just might have another plan before I get there. He wasn't an immature believer. God had taught him quite a bit about this in his life. He had full intentions, but he puts in there, if the Lord wills. That word will is thelo, and it really speaks of what God intends, in which God gets involved with in carrying it all the way out to its purpose. When you think of the Lord's will, you think of James chapter 4, verse 14. James says the same thing. See, when you're up under the subjection of Christ, you can't even tell there will be a tomorrow. <laughs> you don't know that. You have to make your plan, but then the Lord directs your, your, your steps, and that's where the adventure begins. You understand that God is going to direct your paths, and even though your, your plan is what it is, you have to be attached to him, not merely attached to your own plan. Verse 14, it says, Yet you do, not know, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, James 4, he says, As it is, you boast in your, same word there, arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I mean, that's an incredible statement. Our lives are a mere vapor that just vanishes away. I mean, you look at Paul's life. He's writing to immature believers here. He is a mature believer. And when you stop and you look at some of the things that he's already exposed of their arrogance, that they don't live under the authority of God, they exceed the word of God, they, they could care less. But he does, because he's their father. He loves them in the Lord. He lives a day at a time. When you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 6, there's a couple instances there of how Paul learned what it meant to live a day at a time with the Lord. If you're submitted to doing what God intends you to do, you're willing to turn it loose and say, okay, you know what, if it's not now, that's fine. So many times we get stuck in our plans, and maybe our plans are not God's plans. It says he passed through Fergie and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come 
to Mysia. They were trying to go to Bithynia. I mean, they tried over and over and over to make this trip. And it says, nope, not going to happen. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go there. It says in verse 8 that they went down to Troas. It was in Troas where he got that Macedonian vision. Paul took the, the fact that he couldn't get into all these other places included. He must go over to Macedonia. It was the south, southernmost tip, really, of Europe. Christianity started there and then moved up there to the place of England. And as a result of that, when you stop and think about it, there was a group of people who came from England over to America for religious freedom. And here we are today in the United States of America. Thank God Paul had a better place, or God had a better place for Paul to go. And Paul was willing to listen to God. See, he learned the fact that even though you plan your way, God directs your steps. And that's what he's saying to him here. He's saying, you know, I know I'm talking to some immature folks here, but I'm not immature, and I know something. I've walked with God. I've surrendered my will to his, and I'm telling you, I am coming soon. But only if the Lord wills. He was willing to wait on the Lord because he was under his authority. He says here in verse 19 that this talk is just that. It's just talk. I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. The word power, we get the word dynamite from, dunamis. Normally, it refers to the ability acquired to accomplish a task our Lord has assigned to us. But when you get into the spiritual vocabulary here, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. In verse 18, it refers to the essential reality of of something, the true nature of something, the source of of something. And the only source that these people had was hot air. And Paul's saying, my source is the power of God. Where's your source? My words are, the, are coming from God. Where are your words coming from? So in Philippians 3.10, that's why he points out that it's the power of his resurrection. Not just the, the power, but the source of that power is who? Is God himself. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to understand. You're saying all these words and you think you have power, but your power is nothing. It's just hot air. Or in 2 Timothy 3.5, talks about the last days. He uses it in such a way there that I think it's clear that we can see he's talking about the source of it, not just the ability of it. Or 2 Timothy, he says there in 3.5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Who is the power? The Holy Spirit of God living in us. That's where we get the power to live the life that God has called us to live. It's God's grace that enables us. 
It's not just some ability we possess. And so he wants us to be understand that. He wants them to understand that. You have no reason to have this arrogance because this power is just coming from you. There's no real power behind it. That's why he says in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. See, that's the problem with the Corinthian arrogant believers here is they had the word only. That was it, their word. In one five, he says, it didn't, the gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He's talking about the greatest sign, the greatest wonder, not signs and wonders as the charismatic movement would have us to believe. But he's talking about the greatest sign, the greatest wonder, how a man can be transformed from within by the power of God and be saved from his sin. That's the real power he's talking about. That's the power of the gospel. What he's telling them is, hey, I hear your talk. You sound intelligent. But some of you have become so boastful I'm not coming to hear your boast. I'm coming to see where you're coming from. I want to see your walk. I mean, it's amazing even in our churches today how we can act spiritual. I mean, I'd love to be a, a fly that could fly in the house of people. See how people really live. Where is the power behind our Christian lives? Is it coming from the flesh? Is it something we turn on and off when we come to church? Do we have that unending desire to be taught and to learn and to grow in the Word of God? Or is it just something we turn on on Sunday and bring our Bible and sit here very diligently and turn to the passages when the pastor says to turn to the passages and walk out thinking we've checked a box? but we can go the whole week without even opening our Bible. Because if we're real honest with ourselves, there's no desire. <laughs> and you have to go back and say, why is there no desire? Because maybe you're, you in your spiritual life has become detached from Christ. You have filled that with other things. Think back when you were first saved and incredible wonder and the joy you found when someone gave you your first Bible and you were able to open it up and read it for yourself and you're like, wow, where do I start? You were so excited. Why does that go away? Every day should be that way. Well, faith that does not result in right living May, not have, may have many words to support it, but it will have no power. That's so true. And they had a lot of showy gifts. They had a lot of stuff. Um, but it was all for naught. It, it really caused more problems than it did help for them. And so we have to stop and we have to say, where are we 
spiritually impotent? Do we see the power of God in our lives each and every day? Is God transforming us each and every day? Are we becoming more like Christ each and every day? And then he says here in verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This really talks about spiritual influence. The kingdom of God refers to the area where a king reigns. Here it's talking about God. If you're saying you're members of the kingdom of God and you're part of his territory, your hearts are part of the territory where God reigns as well. So therefore it should act it should affect the way you act. So he says it's not just about words. But it's about power. See, it's when you become a Christian, you don't just turn a switch and you start to live the Christian life by your own power. You can't. That's why you need Christ each and every day. That's why Paul says, it's not me, it's Christ that lives in me. He wants you utterly dependent upon him each and every day. That's that divine enablement that God gives us to have the spiritual influence that he desires us to have so that our influence isn't just a bunch of words, but people can actually see the power of God in your life because you're living under the reign of Christ. You're living in his kingdom. The last thing here he points out in verse 21 is he asks a question, a spiritual inquiry. I mean, it kind of sounds like a something a father would do. (laughs) I love it when people ask questions. He asks in verse 21, what do you wish? What do you desire? He's really saying, why do you think I'm telling you this? I'm not just here throwing a fit I'm not yelling at you. I'm not screaming at you. I'm not berating you. I'm not trying to shame you. I love you. I'm your father. I'm your spiritual father in Christ. What do you want me to do? And he asks the question, shall I come to you with a rod? What's that mean? He's going to bring a stick and beat him? No, it doesn't mean that. I mean, if you think about a rod, what happens when you apply the rod to a child? It's painful for them, which it should be. That's part of discipline. But it involves pain. That's really what he's saying. He's really telling them, you know what? You think it is painful for me to to write to you? It's going to be a lot more painful if I have to come and I have to actually deal with you if you don't deal with this yourself. Do you want to deal with it, or do you want to wait till I come, and then I'll deal with it? That's kind of what he's telling them. Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a gentle, in a spirit of gentleness, because when I come, you would have dealt with it. That, gen- that word gentleness isn't talking about weakness. He's not saying that, but it talks about brokenness. 
It's really a good way to think of gentleness. Christ was gentle. What does that mean? He wasn't some wimp. But it's power under control. It's power under control. You know, when you watch people in the martial arts, you know, they can do some amazing things. Why? Because they have power under control. Um, and that's, that's really what that word means. And so he says, do you want me to come that way? Because as an apostle, I have the authority to do it. I can apply the rod. <laughs> or do you want to deal with it before I get there? And then I can come to you in the spirit of gentleness. Uh, Proverbs 3.13 says, For the, whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Or over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Notice, he disciplines us. We're not under the judgment of God in a way that would cause us to lose our salvation. We will be judged according to our works one day. But that judgment is a positive judgment. That's what kind of rewards we will receive. It's not a judgment that says, oh, I'm going to take something away from you. But God does discipline his children. And that's a telltale sign that someone is actually a believer, if you think about it. I've talked to people over the years, you know, oh, please pray for my cousin or pray for someone. What's going on? You know, well, you know, they're a Christian, but, you know, um, they're, they're, they're not living for the Lord. Well, what do you mean? Well, they're on their third marriage and they're living with somebody who's not their wife now and, and they're a drug addict and they're an alcoholic and their life is just a big mess. But I know they're a Christian. <laughs> Wait a minute. Why? Why would you say such a thing? You know, and, and sometimes you can see in the life of a Christian when the Christian falls, as we all do, we fall into sin, but what happens? The Lord convicts, the Lord disciplines us because we're his children. When there's no discipline, that's a big question mark. Is that person really a believer? Have they ever really been transformed by the grace of God? And then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, we'll close with this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. See, that's exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthian church. Look, I want to be your spiritual father. I love you, and I have to say some hard things to you, but you need to clean your act up. You need to get reattached to Christ. You need to walk away from some of these things that hold you in their grip. Don't make me have to come to you, he's saying. Be zealous and repent. I don't know where you're at in your Christian walk today. I pray that you're living for the Lord each and every day in utter dependence upon him to help you do so. But it's very easy in our Christian lives to become arrogant, to think, hey, you know what? We don't need, to, we don't need anybody. I'm a man unto myself. <clears throat> I don't need Bible study. I don't need church. I don't need this. I don't need that. I'm, nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's an arrogant attitude. And it's not that God hasn't 
told us what to do. He's told us very clearly, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. If there's times when the word of God is to be taught or presented or whatever, as a believer, you're called to be there. It's not, a, it's not really an optional thing. <laughs> and I know we're busy. We're all busy. But that's what we're called to do is the body of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have used Paul, even in the life of the Corinthians, to say difficult things as their spiritual father. And Lord, sometimes as fathers ourselves, we need to say those difficult things to our children in love. Lord, I pray you'd give us wisdom as fathers, as, as dads, that when those times come that we would do those, speak those hard words or apply that discipline or correction in the spirit of Christ, in the spirit of love. And Lord, that we would always remind our children that we do love them. And Father, that's exactly what you do to us. You constantly remind us that Christ died for us. You love us more than anything. And yet you're not going to sit idly by if we're not living lives in obedience to you. If we're your children, you're going to affect change in our life somehow. And I just pray that we would take it upon ourselves to examine our own hearts, our own lives, and walk in a way that is honoring to you. Not going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. But that's where your grace is applied to our lives. And that, for that, we're eternally thankful. But Lord, we pray that as we leave this place today, that we would be reminded that we do hold on to that gospel, that life-changing message of Christ. And Lord, as I said last week, I pray that we would never forget there's a lost and dying world out there who needs desperately to hear the message of Christ. And Father, that we would take steps of faith to reach out to our friends, our neighbors, our family members, and present to them through a track, through our own words, the gospel of Christ, expecting you to convict them, to draw them to Christ as you once drew us. Father, we thank you. We pray that if anybody here has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that today might be the day of salvation for them, that they would understand that they need to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You need to acknowledge your sin, and then you need to turn away from it. You need to turn to the Savior. That's called repentance. And you put your faith wholly and only in Christ's sacrifice for you on the cross. When you cry out to him, he will save you. He will transform you. He will make you into the person he desires you to be. Father, we thank you and we pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. In Jesus' name, amen.